0: good morning how we doing okay here we are again how are my parking lot people all right i hear some horns thank you thank you it's good to be here together with you if you're visiting with us we're glad to have you and uh we're continuing our series I, in 1 first peter i call it uh the word art of peter living in the shadow of a hostile world. So last week we spent some time talking about practical holiness, or holiness that's applied to our real day-to-day lives, and how it creates greater possibilities of relationships and deeper community with others, including Christian community. And a lot of people, you probably look at holiness and you wouldn't think, eh, it's very practical. It's kind of... Something associated with God, pie in the sky, by and by. He's separate and apart from us. But really, uh, holiness helps us, and it's eminently practical because it creates a context where we can overcome certain relationship killers. Things like malice and envy and hypocrisy is what Peter talked about some last week. And instead, when there's a condition of holiness that cuts through a lot of the baloney, that burns a lot of the baloney away, we have a place where we are able to love one another deeply from the heart. And for true Christian community, community that transforms lives and discipleship, the only glue strong enough to hold this together in any lasting permanent sense is deep and sincere love. In a lot of ways, we got some growing to do in a lot of ways, we're not there yet. And there are people who aren't here with us because they felt a pain of not having a sincere love. Even from this midst, they have gone out from us not feeling a sincere love. Now, it takes time for that love to grow. It takes intentionality and investing in relationship. It takes a willingness to be vulnerable. And if you come here with an open and sincere heart, I have no doubt, that the Lord is going to teach us how to love better, and you're going to find that missing piece. So, holiness and sincere love—they're based on and they grow through God's word. You want to ask the question: How do we make holy people? the The answer is: You feed them a whole lot of the Word of God. And uh, this is an actual lived obedience to the Word. And for biblical writers, there's no such thing as knowing something unless you obey it. In our day, we can know lots of things and not necessarily live it out or obey it. But for them and their understanding, if you really know something, it is a lived and practical experience, not disconnected from your day-to-day lives. Peter says you're not purified until you obey it. The knowledge isn't full, it isn't really known, until it is actually obeyed. Um, And until you actually obey the Word of God, you won't know the fruit that it produces in our lives, fruit like sincere love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. So verse 122 we looked at says this, now that you have purified yourselves, by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers. Love one another deeply from the heart. Love one another deeply from the heart. Peter says, since you have this love for each other, you've got to show it. Show it in your words. Show it in your actions. Show it in your service. Show it with how you spend your time. Show it with your money. This is the kind of transformation that God's Word can bring to us. Uh, so Peter, he, he ends up using then this biological language to describe how the Word of God works. What is it like? It's like imperishable seed. It doesn't fade or diminish. It just keeps on bringing life. And God's work is like pure spiritual milk, which nourishes to help us become strong and mature. And the Word is pure. It's not diluted. It's not watered down. And it's the only thing that is capable of giving us the nourishment that we need. The kind of nourishment that can heal a broken soul. The kind of nourishment that grows us into the salvation of God. We have a lot of Christians whose lives are anemic. They're powerless. They're wishy-washy, double-minded, They're stuck and not growing. And the reason for this is we're starved for the Word of God. Starved maybe not just for knowledge of it, but lived application of that Word. And then we talked about how important it is to approach this Word of God with a sense of humility. You know, a lot of times we are tempted to come to Scripture with an axe to grind, a proof text that we get to rub in someone's face, an argument that we want to win. But sometimes we use this as a shield and we try to hide from the Word of God and the implications for our own lives. So come to the Word of God with humility. Come with the idea that you approach it to be transformed, to be challenged, to be called out, to be changed. And let the Word of God have its way in your life. The 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 Spirit of the Lord will help you with all of this. So if you have a Bible, today we're in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 4 through 10, 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. And we get a real gift today, and I was excited about this, studying it, because Peter uses all of this really rich language of our identity, of our identity. Who does God say that we are? You see, Peter could see the writing on the wall, so to speak. Uh, The Christian churches that he was writing to in this cyclical letter they were already starting to face different kinds of persecution. And it was going to heat up, and it was about to get a whole lot worse. And Peter knows that the only Christians and the only churches that are going to be able to stand in the face of this kind of cultural persecution, to withstand the hardships and the trials that come, and the persecutions, whatever form, the only people who are going to have the strength to stand against this kind of wave coming against them are only those who are secure in their identity, are only those who truly know who they are and whose they are. Most people are just, they're drifting through this world. They're drifting. They don't know who they are. They look for comfort in any place they can get it. They don't understand their own value. They don't understand that God is good and for them and not against them. They don't understand how deeply God desires a relationship with them. And So we live in this world where we pretend like God isn't real, and we try to make our reality all of the other things, things that are more tangible, things that we can see. And... So it's a game we play, because in the end, the thing, and we know that the things that we entrust ourselves to, that we give our hearts to and our souls to, they rob us of our identity. They steal our identity from us. So people try to build an identity on things like beauty, intelligence, net worth. You ever hear the phrase, he who dies with the most toys wins? He who dies with the most toys still dies. Identities built upon maybe things like fame or power or influence or popularity. And if I don't have those things myself, I still have value because maybe I know someone who's popular. I know someone who has those things. And so we follow these celebrity lives as if that imparts some kind of us. Or maybe we try to build our identity based on our accomplishments, based on what we can build around us. But the praise of men is fickle. And already Peter has compared the glory of humanity to the brevity and fragility of a flower growing in a field. But for the children of God, for those whose hearts are fully turned to and fully surrendered to Christ Jesus. We have a place to stand that is inconceivable to most of this world. Even to a lot of other Christians, we have a place to stand in a firmness of identity and a kind of resolve that is going to be able to stand against the waves of this culture and all the evil that's penetrated it. There are so many voices out there clamoring for our attention, Just, I think the enemy's tactic is, if I could just distract them to get our focus on the things that don't matter and pretend like the things that don't matter are really the things that matter. And all of these things like relationships and whatnot, they're just kind of, they come and go and they're not the real thing. In the end, the only answer that is, is going to matter about who you are and your identity. It doesn't matter what other people say or think. It's only what God says about you that in the end is going to stand and matter. Who does God say you are? What does God say about the identity of this church? That's the only thing in the end that is going to matter. So Peter's first word art image that he gives us is our understanding, an understanding of our God-given identity as spiritual stones, stones being built into a spiritual house. As you come to him, the living stone, referring to Jesus, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Our living stone is Jesus, and remember Jesus was rejected by people who refused to accept his identity. You are not the Messiah. You are not the Son of God. You are not the Messiah that we want. But the impact that Jesus was able to have, the place where he stood, the reason why Jesus Christ moved the world is because the only word that he cared about was who does my father say that I am Jesus was the stone that was thrown into the trash pit but God pulled this rejected stone out of the garbage as something that he saw as precious to him something that is valuable and Peter says we're being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So as soon as Peter's word art invites us to think of ourselves as being stacked up into, into bricks building a house, imagine if we all got in a pile and all, we put all of the bigger people here, this whole church, and we built on top of them the next layer and the next... Oh, that would be disastrous, wouldn't it? It's kind of fun to think about. Who would be the one who scrambled on to be the very top of the... Probably someone smaller and lighter. I think some, somehow it's got to be one of the wood kid boys who would scramble up there or something. Maybe Sterling could get on top. Well, we're being built into the spiritual house. And then we are also to be functioning as priests within this house, a spiritual priesthood. And so that's kind of another word art image that Peter is using. He's identifying us as not just bricks, this living stones, as something that is built into this new kind of temple, but spiritual priests offering a different kind of sacrifice. So what is the difference of our priesthood versus the Aaron priesthood, maybe? Now we as priests, we approach Jesus instead of an altar. Now the priests offer spiritual sacrifices instead of slaughtered animals, and now the temple is God's people and not a temple made by human hands. And we are being built into this spiritual priesthood, this spiritual house and holy priesthood, in order order to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. So what are some of these spiritual sacrifices that we're called to make? Well, it's all kinds of things. All kinds of things become our spiritual sacrifices, the offering that we make. And I think uh, what it comes down to, the big sacrifice that we give, have your way in my life, Lord Jesus. And I give up my life, and I sacrifice my desire and my want to live out the things that God wants. And that actually becomes our desire. So possible spiritual sacrifices, Peter talks about in his letter. He talks verse three, one through seven, about husbands and wives, how you treat your marriage partner. Seems like there's this longer list for women and a shorter one for guys, but you look at the what is meant there. For the I think maybe the higher burden is with these guys. You love your wife, you honor your wife. That in this marriage relationship, there's a giving there that becomes a sacrifice that we make not just to each other, but to God. 1 Peter 3, 9 through 16, another spiritual sacrifice. Our refusal to answer evil for evil. We don't retaliate when evil is done to us. Instead, we bless. How many of us are living that as a reality? the discipline or the spiritual sacrifice of controlling one's lusts. Instead of just feeding our time and our attention into our basest desires, with all about pleasuring myself and comforting myself, when we set that aside because of love of Jesus and love of holiness, it becomes a spiritual sacrifice that we make. There's language like this throughout our New Testament. Different New Testament writers say things like this. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name, and do not forget to do good and to share with others For with such sacrifices God is pleased from the Hebrew sacrifice of praise. Do good. Share with others. Then this one from Romans. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. 2, 6 through 8 A. Because this is all rich with not language that Peter himself came up with, but stuff he found. For in scripture it says this See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. But to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. So, Peter, you think about what his name means, Rock, Rocky, Rocky, yo Adrian, his name means Rocky. He spent a lot of time searching the scriptures for rock language, he must have, and the Bible is filled with rock language. This language was imagery that helped him understand Jesus, to help him understand himself, to understand that Jesus' disciples were being built into something. So let's look at, at Peter's source material briefly. So this is what the Sovereign Lord says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, for a sure foundation, the one who trusts will never be dismayed from the prophet Isaiah. Then from Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. In Jesus Christ, this is truly marvelous. And Isaiah eight fourteen, he will be a sanctuary for both houses of Israel. He will be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. So Peter is just pulling this Imagery, this richness of all this word out right out of the Old Testament, and uh, this imagery that the prophets use. And then Peter adds this strange little phrase to it They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Destined for. So let me just say a word briefly about this, because it could be confusing potentially. I don't think this means that for all time and eternity, God has destined some people for disobedience, and they don't have a choice about that. I don't think that's what this means, because I know the character of God. God does not will evil on anyone. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And we know that Peter doesn't think that once a person has rejected God that they can't change, because in verse uh, chapter 2, verse 12, he says he urges current unbelievers to convert, implying that at any time they can stop rejecting Christ and come to believe. And you think about Peter's own life, the one who denied Jesus Christ and the rooster crow and is the foundation that Jesus builds, builds on and redeems that life. Rather, I think what Peter is talking about is there are consequences when you reject Jesus Christ. When you thumb your nose at Jesus, when you thumb your nose at the commands of God, you just, I'm throwing the Bible out, I'll take these and I'll leave these. When you say thanks but no thanks. Stumbling will be your destiny. Stumbling will be your destiny. It's like the laws of physics. Gravity isn't just a suggestion, it's a law. It's the law. You reject God and his desire for you, you you reject your God given identity, you're going to have stumbling. You're going to be tripped without a place to stand. So Peter continues on with his identity language, and all of his words are carefully chosen with layer upon layer of meaning. I had a hard time getting through this. There's so many Old Testament verses just stacked up on on top of each other, either directly quoted or referenced in different ways. But Peter uses the word art of the Old Testament and applies this picture to our lives, and how the church works as a spiritual house, and how we are to function as priests offering these spiritual sacrifices. So he says this, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Now I just wanted you to compare this to these words from all the way back to the Exodus. You have the holy, uh, chosen priesthood, royal priest, uh, chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, people belonging to God. Look at these words from Exodus 19. Now, if you obey me and keep my covenant fully, keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is the imagery that Peter is grabbing and applying to the church. And then uh, look at this prophecy from Malachi 3, 17 through 18. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. I will spare them. Just as in compassion, a man spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. And distinction language between the wicked and the righteous. And Peter uses distinction language. In 2.9, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Wickedness, righteousness, darkness, marvelous light. All of these things are in this tapestry of, of Peter's thinking and Peter's imagery that he's using for us. God gives us an identity, but we need to pay attention that this is an identity that's also tied to responsibility. Let me go back. That you may declare the praises of him. You may declare the praises of him. That's a responsibility, and it's a responsibility tied to the mission of God. How well are you declaring the praises of him who called you out of darkness? You testify to anyone about what God has done in your life? Who do you share that with? I was like this, and look what God has done for me. Look at the blessings the Lord has accomplished on my behalf. See, our identity is based on the heart of God and who God says we are. But this identity is also an invitation for us. It's an invitation to live into the mission of God and become the heart of God ourselves. And we know what the heart of God is like. It always builds relationship. It is for redemption and reconciliation. As his chosen people, his priests, it is our responsibility to declare his praises. What this means is that we testify to all the ways God has moved us from darkness to light in Jesus Christ. Let me tell you what God did in my marriage and how he saved it. Let me tell you how God made me a better man. Let me let me tell you the story. When I, it looked hopeless, How God saved my children when they had gone astray and lived this worldly life. Let me, we need to share that testimony. Let me tell you what God did when so and so was sick. Let me tell you what God did in response to the prayers of this church over the. When we are silent, when we're silent about those things, we're not living up to our priestly duty. I'm not saying that everything works out rosy and perfect for us just because we take on the name Jesus Christ. But if you have eyes to see and ears to hear and you do not honor the ways that God has helped you, changed you, saved you, given you a place to stand, we're not living up to our priestly responsibility. Peter goes on to say this, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter is using the language of the prophet Hosea. If you look at Hosea, it uses almost this word for word, the same kind of language so, for those of you who may not, may not remember, uh, Hosea was the prophet that God commanded to marry a prostitute. You go and take a wife of whoredom. And this was a living parable of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. Israel was the one who God chose as his treasured possession. But she ran away in adultery and shame. She bore children of unfaithfulness. And then God goes on in this prophecy and he commands Hosea, after your wife starts cheating, go find her. Buy her back. Redeem her and love her. You see, the story of Hosea is the story of God's love for his wayward people. In Hosea 1, 6 through 9, he's given these crazy names to his kids. Here's Hosea's children's names. The children that are born out of this unfaithfulness. How about, let's name our kid not loved. I will call you not pitied because you have not received mercy. Or how about this one? I'm going to name you not my people. Not my people. Because you've betrayed me and broken my heart. You are not my people. And what Peter is saying is that each and every one of us in our own ways, we're like an adulterous prostitute. Each and every one of us we have different ways that we do this, but we're all cheaters. Because in verse uh, chapter two, verse 25, he says, "You are all like sheep going astray. Not just some of you, all of you are like sheep going astray." And likewise, if you don't seek God in your life, if you haven't learned to trust in Him for your identity, you're like children of unfaithfulness. Some of us have known the pain in reality of parents who just didn't love us. And the impact that that has had in your life and the scars that you carry for that. Some of us have been burdened to know what that is like. And without Jesus, without God in our lives, that is what we're destined for. That is the stumbling that we're destined for. And we feel in our souls, I am not loved. I don't know what I've done to become so unlovable. I'm not pitied. I don't have a people. I'm alone and I'm lonely and I don't know where I belong. How many people feel that burden? Of not having an identity, of not having a place to stand. And then look at these amazing words from Hosea's prophecy. Compare them to 1 Peter 2.10. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Hosea 2.23 says, I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. And I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. And Peter, in his word art, what he is saying. He's showing us that we, the children of Jesus, the children of God, this spiritual house, this royal priesthood that we have become, we are the fulfillment of the prophecy of, Isaiah, of Hosea. And so Hosea, he's living this. His wife goes. And he thinks it's over, but then the command of the Lord comes to Hosea, and he says, no, you go pursue your cheating wife. You go chase after her. And so these are the words, go, show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Though they turn to other gods... So then Hosea says, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and some other barley or something. So I bought her. I redeemed her. She was in the dark place of unfaithfulness before I called to her, calling her out of that darkness to marvelous light. Again, it sounds a lot like language Peter uses. What is the marvelous light? It's our identity in Jesus Christ. It's who God says that we are. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The marvelous light is, I am loved by God. I am his chosen and precious possession. And I have been bought back. I've been bought back. Hosea uses 15 shekels of silver to redeem his wife. Peter says this, You know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from your empty way of life. But with the precious blood of Christ, the price of our redemption, Peter is using all of this imagery and applying it to the church, and who we are to be as the special and unique people of God. So beautiful. So, Dad, you can come up. That's our lesson for today. It's all this identity language. It's all this identity language. Let me just close with a couple scriptures and just a couple more words. Hosea 1.10 says, In the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. They will be called children of the living God. First, in John 1 it says this, He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to all those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor a human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Not born of a husband's decision. That means what God is offering you is even greater than the family. Whether you got a good dad or a bum dad, whether you got a good mom or a mom that made you feel like you were never good enough, this is a higher calling. An identity that can't be taken. Because this identity that Jesus Christ makes available to us, to all who accept him, he accepts and calls that they may have the right to be called children of the living God, children of God. This is our identity that's available to us. This is the identity that's given to us. Jesus Christ makes all of this possible. And he does this in each of our lives and he does this in what we are capable of doing together as a church community, as a spiritual house that's being built, as a temple of the living God. He's helping us become that. And when you truly, truly live from your God-given identity as chosen, as loved, as a child of God, as God's house, as God's priest, when you begin to act like these things are true and you live from that place, not only do you have an identity that allows you to stand against whatever persecutions come your way and whatever trials this world is going to throw at us, not only do you have a place to stand against that, but you become a rescuer of those who are around you. You become the people who are along and the swift current of the garbage of this culture is just sweeping people away and you are the ones who are standing on a firm foundation and identity and you are plucking people in from the rivers or washing people away. That's the treasure of this identity that we're given in Christ Jesus. So if you'd like to put the Lord in a baptism, if you want the prayers of this church, Um, I invite you to come forward as we stand and sing, and I invite you to consider what it is, what a treasure that you've been given as God's chosen people, as God's royal priesthood, and who we are as God's holy nation. Let's stand and sing.